Tonight is class two of our series called Unpacking the Gospel. And we'll focus this evening on the sinfulness of man. Let me remind you from last week what the gospel means. Literally, gospel comes from a word that means good news. Good news. And I'm convicted that the way to best fully present this message is in the order of good news, then bad news, then good news. The good news, the first good news, is what we considered last week, which is the goodness of God. The God who created you and me is, by his very nature, good. He is pure. He is uncorrupt. He is undefiled. He is love. He is justice. He is holy. And because that's who he is in his being, that is what emanates directly from him. So all the goodness in the world has, excuse me, has its origin in God. As the Bible says, every good and perfect gift comes from above. God is good. And we live in a world that needs to hear that. Tonight, however, we're going to focus on the opposite of that. The bad news. And for many of us, it's not anything we haven't heard already. But just like it's easy for us to forget just how good God is, it's also easy for us to forget how sinful we are. So if you came tonight for a feel-good motivational speech, you might be in the wrong place. But in order for us to understand that third aspect of the gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ's redemption and forgiveness of our sins, we must first understand the bad news. How bad we are and how much debt we owe to the Lord. So I'm going to begin by telling the story of how we got in this situation. Genesis chapter 3. And all the verses that I'll be reading to you are in your handout this evening. Our sin begins historically with the fall of man. When the Bible uses the word man in our English translations, that means mankind, humankind, every one of us. None of us is exempt. So what happened here in this story represents you and me. And the reason why the world is the way it is finds its origin in this story. This is not merely some Sunday school lesson or a myth or a children's book. This is actual history. Genesis 3, verses 6 through 7 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. In a nutshell, this is the fall of man. Adam, the first man ever created, is our federal head. And what that means is what he did represents us. So when Adam ate that forbidden fruit, it's as if you and I ate that forbidden fruit. His shame, his guilt, and the consequences of his actions are all imputed to us. We deserve what Adam did. And lest you think, I wouldn't do that. If that were me in the Garden of Eden, I would not have eaten that, that tree. That's false. And we'll see in just a little bit that we are all sharing of the same inclinations and proclivities of our federal head, 
our first man, Adam. But this is not just about eating fruit. Remember, if you've ever seen the meme, What's Wrong With You People, starring R.C. Sproul and his angry face, is because at a conference once he was asked, wasn't it a little bit excessive for God to, to punish Adam and Eve so, so um, distinctly, so, so gravely, just because they ate a piece of fruit? It isn't just about eating a piece of fruit. It's about turning your back on the source of all that is good. They had everything they needed in God. They had everything they needed in the Garden of Eden, actually. God said you could have any tree. And this is before sin, right? So every tree tasted good. There were no bugs. I'm convinced that bugs are a direct result of the fall. No bugs. No, nothing buzzing around your ear. Nothing to distract us. Everything was good. And they, by their disobedience, turned their back on the good. They turned their back on God. They chose to do that. And so even though God is everything and God gave them everything, they chose to turn away from God. And so man fell with them. Adam carries DNA that is then passed on to all of us. And we inherit that original sin because of our first father, Adam. The fall of man is rooted in at least two things. Man's limitations and the enemy's attack. Man's limitations. Why did man fall into sin? Now that's a whole other category of theology that we can get into. But suffice it to say... That man is created with the capacity to choose right from wrong. He's created with the capacity to choose to sin. It's against God's very nature to lie. We think about what can God do? It's almost like a trick question, right? We just established last week. God can do everything. He's perfect. But technically, there are things God cannot do. For example, God cannot lie. It is against God's nature because he's so good to ever sin. We, however, have the capacity to sin. Look what it says in Genesis 3, 19. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread until you return to the ground. For from it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. To dust you shall return. Right there, God is establishing who man is by reminding man that he is not God. God is, from last week, eternal Man was created from dust. God will live forever. Man will return to the dust. God is unlimited. Man is limited. We are inhibited. Even today, if you heard a message like this and said, when I leave here, when I leave this room, I'm not going to sin for the rest of my life. How many of you would go 24 hours without sin? One hour? (laughs) We could try. We can try, but here's the problem. We may be determined not to sin, but there are things that limit us, right? One, the environment around us. We can get exhausted. We can get tired. We can get too hot or too cold or uncomfortable. And when we're letting our guard down, we tend to sin more frequently. There could be other people in our lives that annoy us, that provoke us, that anger us, right? Then there's just our own sinful nature. The temptations in our hearts, the lust in our hearts, the anger in our hearts. 
Try as you may, we will fall. That's the nature of man, because we are limited. So why did man fall? Is because he's limited. But secondly, it's not just that man was limited, but that there's an enemy. There's an enemy out there that wants us to fail. Whereas God created us so that we would succeed. God created us so that we would have perfect friendship with him. There is an enemy, a cosmic enemy, that hates God, and by extension, hates God's people. Look in your hand, that again, letter B. The fall of man is not only rooted in nature, man's limitations, but rooted in temptation, the enemy's attack. Here's how chapter 3 begins. Verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There is a cosmic battle that we often forget is raging. Even in the New Testament, Paul says, We wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers. Satan is referred to as the prince of the power of the air. John tells us that the whole world lies in the clutches of the wicked one. Peter warns us that Satan wars about like a lion seeking whom he may devour. If it's not clear from cover to cover, you have an enemy. And that enemy, Satan, which means accuser, is after your soul. Just like he was after the soul of Adam and Eve. And so he went to Eve in a very vulnerable position, Adam being nowhere to be found, and he tempted her. He twisted scripture. He twisted God's words, right? He said to her, um, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree? God never said you can't eat any tree. God said you could eat every tree except one tree. So he begins by, by twisting things, making her second guess herself. And then when she says, but God said, if I eat that tree, I'll die. Satan just says a flat out lie. You will not surely die. He's trying not, not only is he trying to tempt her to eat the fruit because it looks good, he's tempting her to second guess God's goodness. He's making her believe that this good God, who is in and of himself good and worthy of worship, and who's given her everything she needs life and breath and food and vegetation and air, and he's getting her to think, God is withholding something from me. God doesn't want me to be happy. There's something in this garden that's good for me, and God doesn't want me to have it. Do you see how subtle sin could be? Sin lies to us. Satan lied to this woman and makes it seem as though God is the evil one. And so what happens? Because man is susceptible to temptation, and because there is a cosmic tempter, Man fell into sin, as we saw in the beginning, where Eve reached out her hand, took and ate of that fruit, gave it to her husband, and they both ate. Well, what happened as a result of this tragic decision? Well, there were cosmic results. 
It wasn't a one-time deal. But what happened in the Garden of Eden still affects us here in the year 2023. This brought to us death, evil, shame, and separation from God. Do you know that if Adam and Eve did not eat of that fruit, we would be immortal? We would live forever. Man dies because of sin. The Bible says, because of sin, death entered the world. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, to judgment. Look at God's judgment sentence to the woman and the man in Genesis 3, 16 to 19. That's um, letter C on your handout. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Now, by the way, as theologians have said for 2,000 years, this probably means more than just the physical pain of labor. It means that, but it means more than that. It means that bringing children into a sin-cursed world in and of itself comes with pain. Your desire goes on. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Well, a lot of ink has been spilt on what that means, and you can probably look it up online or in a commentary. But no matter how you frame that, almost everyone agrees that at the very least, this means there's going to be some sort of enmity between man and woman. So where they once had perfect harmony, that harmony is now disrupted. Verse 17. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it by the way when God pointed out Adam's sin, you might remember the first thing Adam said was, it was the woman you gave me. Man still plays the blame game today, right? So God is saying, no, take responsibility. You listened to her. You ate of it. I said not to eat it. It's your fault. You have to take responsibility. So he says back in verse 17, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now to clarify something that some people might think, work is not a result of the curse. But hard labor is. So don't think that there's not going to be work, even in the new heavens and the new earth. When Eden was perfect and man lived in Eden, he was given a job. So he did have to till the land. He did have to grow plants and take care of everything. But the reason why work now could be so grueling and so boring, and we struggle to to find the job that makes us happy, and we feel like we're not satisfied. And I understand if we survey the room, there's going to be a different level of that. Some of us might say, I love my job, and some might say, I hate my job, and some might be right in the middle. But generally speaking, the reason why the world is the way it is, why we are largely unsatisfied, why we're always looking for something more, is because the ground is cursed. The same ocean that we could look at and say, what a beautiful ocean. It looks beautiful. It's a place for transportation. It's a place to swim. It's a place to surf. I assume people like those things. Not me, but I know people like that. Um, It's a place to fish. It's also a place where people drown. A place where shipwrecks happen. A place where shark attacks happen. Do you see? You could take anything that's beautiful and say, yes, it still remains beautiful because God is beautiful, but it's lost its perfection. Because it's fallen. We live in a fallen world. Romans 5 
clearly tells us that through one man, that's Adam, sin entered the world, and so death by sin. This is the result of the fall of man. It's not in your handout, but Isaiah 59 tells us that your sins have separated you from God. If you recall from last week, I compared God's goodness to like a Wi-Fi router. As the router emanates the the signals for your device to pick up the Wi-Fi, the further you get from the goodness of God, the the more wickedness you'll see. The further your device gets from the Wi-Fi router, the harder it is to, to log on, right? We get frustrated because we have to keep pressing refresh. But it's worse than that because man has separated himself from God. What would we expect other than darkness and wickedness and evil? People around us today are clamoring for answers. Why is there suffering? Why is there crime and evil and abuse and injustice? The Bible told us the answer from the very beginning. The reason the world is fallen is because man chose to rebel against God. That's the fall of man. And in the fall of man, we see that we are limited. We see that we have an enemy. We see the cosmic results of shame and guilt and death. But embedded in God's judgment of man for his wickedness, there is a promise that is given. And I'm not going to spend too much time on this because as this course progresses, we'll, we'll look more and more at that promise. But here's the, here's the preview. Genesis 3.15, letter D. One of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture. God already judged Eve. He judged Adam. But prior to that, in verse 15, he judges Satan. And here's what he says. He says, I will put enmity. That means contrariness. Opposition. Conflict. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, in Scripture, oftentimes promises or prophecies have a twofold meaning. They mean something for the immediate, and they mean something for the far future. So for the immediate, it could just be that God is saying to Eve, Satan is taking the form of a snake. So from here on out, um, your kids, Eve will have a problem with snakes. And some snakes are going to bite your kids' heels, but the kids' heels are going to crush the snakes' heads. So even though they might get bruised on their heel, ultimately they're going to kill the snakes with their, by stomping on their heads. And that's all it could possibly mean. That's the immediate prophecy. So that's basically an explanation of why man and snake don't get along. But it goes way beyond that. It has a twofold nature. The enmity will not only be between the children of Eve and a snake, but between the offspring of the woman, meaning an entire line of people throughout the ages. And you, in this text, which is Satan, and his entire line of people throughout the ages. In other words, God is saying that this conflict that began in Eden will perpetuate. It will continue down through the ages. When David fought Goliath, Goliath represented the seed of the serpent, and David represented the seed 
of the Lord or of the woman. And we can go on and on and on. It goes on to say, your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. That means that the, the seed of Satan, the ungodly in this world, will do damage. If you have a snake bite, you are damaged. There is a cut. There is a bruise. But as you know, if someone steps on a snake's head, it doesn't just do damage. It destroys the snake. God is promising in Genesis 3.15 that there will be someone of the line of Eve, a human, true human being who can trace his lineage back to Eve, who will come face to face with Satan himself, and though he will be bruised, though he will suffer a wound, he will not ultimately die, but he will crush Satan. Sound like anyone you might know? God promised that all the way back in the Garden of Eden. That's why theologians call Genesis 3.15 the Proto-Evangelium, meaning the first gospel. So if someone says to you, not sure why someone would ask you this, but just go with me here. Where is the first mention of the gospel in the Bible? You might think, well, it's got to be the gospel of John or, or Ephesians, right? It's actually Genesis. Genesis 3.15, God promised, even in the midst of judging Satan and Eve and Adam, that one day there will arise a Redeemer who will crush the head of the serpent, who will destroy Satan once and for all. He will put an end to the opposition, an end to the enmity between man and Satan. Let's move on. The fallenness of man. So we considered... The fall of man. What about the fallenness of man? As I said, if you came here for a motivational pep talk, you're in the wrong place because I'm going to now just briefly give you 16 different ways that the Bible describes sin. You see, one of the temptations we have is minimizing sin. We make excuses for sin. We blame others for sin. Or we think sin is not really a big deal. I remember talking to someone years ago who said, sin is not tangible. It's not something you can measure. It's just like, you know, we're all not perfect. That's not true. Sin is very measurable. It's not mere imperfection. It's not an oopsie. Sin is everything the Bible says that it is. In your handout, I have... 16 words in English that the Bible uses to describe sin. Not types of sin, but just sin in general. And in parentheses, there is either a Greek or Hebrew word that corresponds with that. And I'm not going to, like I said, for sake of time, we'll go through every single one with great detail, but just so you get an idea of everything, or not everything, but comprehensively what the Bible says about sin. And I hope, if anything, what this does is it awakens all of us to just how serious sin is. So one, sin is referred to as depravity or corruption. This word means one who brings trouble to others. I'm sorry to tell you today that by your very nature, you bring trouble to others. The book of Job tells us that man who was born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. 
Secondly, sin is not just depravity or corruption. It's also disobedience. Disobedience is defined as inattention to a voice. If you've ever tried to uh, give commands to children and they don't listen to you and you say, you're not listening to me, but you know, like scientifically, right? They're, they're hearing you, right? There's vibrations in the eardrum. So they're listening in the hearing sense, but listening means you, you actually obey. You do the thing that you're told to do. Well, well, guess what? That's who we are. By nature, we are disobedient. We don't listen to God's voice. God, God's, God's voice is all over Scripture. God's voice is even in creation. The Bible says in Romans 1 that we can see God's wrath just by beholding His creation. And we choose not to listen. The whole creation cries out. That's why I know it sounds insulting, but the Bible itself says the fool has said in his heart there's no God. Because all of creation testifies. But we don't listen. Thirdly, sin is referred to as error. An error simply means straying away or stumbling. It's actually a word that could be used for a drunk person who's not able to walk a straight line because he's so inebriated and intoxicated. You and I are intoxicated with sin. And therefore, we can't walk a straight path when God tells us to. Fourthly, sin is referred to as guilt. That word asham in Hebrew is actually the most common word for sin in all the Old Testament. That's why you might recall if you've read the Old Testament in Leviticus, the word guilt offering being used so often. Guilt means to do wrong, to inflict injury, and that's why we need an atonement, which we'll talk about towards the end of tonight's lesson. Sin, number five, is also referred to as godlessness. Godlessness, the opposite of worship. If we were created to worship God, sin is the exact opposite. It's like shaking our fist at God. It's irreligious, apostasy. God is so associated with goodness that our sin must mean that we are without God. Number six, ignorance. We all know what ignorance means. It means to not know something. Sin is often referred to as ignorance. You're, you're walking in ignorance. It could be a willful ignorance, but an ignorance nonetheless. Number seven, iniquity. You've heard that word, I'm sure, many times in the English Bible. Iniquity means unjust or lack of integrity. You don't have wholeness. You're walking in such a way where you say one thing but do another. And we've all been there. Lawlessness, number eight. Lawlessness. Matter of fact, in the epistle of 1 John, the Apostle John literally says, sin is lawlessness. Like I said earlier, sin is tangible. Can you measure sin? Or is it just some nebulous imperfection? Of course you can measure it. I can literally look at God's laws, and God says, don't commit adultery. If someone's committed adultery, they've broken a law. It's very clear. Now, for those of us who might say, well, I've, I've never, I've never cheated on my spouse. I've never. Jesus comes around and says, if you've lusted after someone, you've committed adultery. Or I could take murder. It says, don't murder. That's a tangible command, a tangible way to break it. And again, you might say, well, I've never killed anybody. But Jesus comes around and says, if you've had anger in your heart against a brother, you've committed murder. And we could talk about lying I mean, who among us hasn't told a lie? Idolatry, putting things in front of God is more important than God. If we were to go through every one of just the Ten Commandments, we would all 
be speechless before the throne of God and say, I am guilty as charged. Sin is lawlessness. Number nine, lust. Lust means a desire or a longing that is unrighteous. It is our lusts that are, that are in our hearts that cause us to sin. Jesus talked about the, the mouth and the heart connection, right? As we pour good things into our hearts and the Holy Spirit changes our hearts, we are more prone to live lives of obedience. But the reason why we live lives of sin is because our hearts are wicked. Jeremiah tells us that our heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things. We have lusts in our hearts. Harmatia, number 10, missing the mark. As Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Try as we may, what is the mark? It's like you look at a dartboard and the bullseye is the mark. Every time we try to hit the bullseye, we miss. Why? Not because we never do good things. We people do good things. But it's because we're not perfect. And the mark is, be perfect. Remember I said last week, God is the standard. Hitler's not the standard. Anybody can be better than Hitler. Or your neighbor or coworker that you know is stealing or cheating, like you compare yourself to them. Oh, you, oh, I'm better than him. I'm better than her. But if God is the standard, the glory of God is the mark, and every time we try to aim for it, we miss. That's why Romans three twenty three says, "All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God." We miss the mark. We deviate from the norm. Number eleven, perversion. Sin is perversion. Perversion means twisted and bent. There's something within us that our wires have been crossed. We don't think correctly at times. We don't do what we're supposed to do. We are twisted at heart. Number 12, rebellion. Rebellion means to openly defy authority. Do you understand? I think it was R.C. Sproul who famously said, sin is cosmic treason. You are committing treason against the king of kings. Think about that. We don't, we don't think about that when we justify our sins. When we let words slip out of our mouths that we know we shouldn't say. When we're not honest like we ought to be, right? We don't, we don't think, oh, I'm about to commit treason. But the Bible brings us back to the truth. We are committing a sin against the king, the eternal king. That's rebellion. Number 13, transgression. Transgression means to cross a line. You know, it's like keep off the grass. And what do you want to do in your sinful attitude? You want to step on the grass. Transgression or trespass, right? To, to go where you're not supposed to go. Sin is to go where you're not supposed to go. You were not created to sin, and yet you and I do. Number 14, treachery. Treachery means infidelity, a breach of trust. God has entrusted us with the lives that we have, and we have squandered that because of our sin. Number 15, wickedness. Wickedness means badness, ruin, calamity. Right? Sometimes our lives seem to be in shambles and chaos, and we, we want to blame it on our upbringing, our education, our, our medical condition, some of which might contribute, absolutely. But at the end of the day, the number one cause of all that is human sin. And number 16, unrighteousness. The word for unrighteousness means not of a right nature. In other words, it just tells us something's wrong. It's not supposed to be this way. God could not have created with this intent in mind that we would be sinful. Our nature should be something else, but we're just not there yet. Unrighteousness. 
There are other words, by the way. I took these 16 from a book called Theology for the Church. But these are the, the main, uh, most common words that are used in the Bible for sin. And I hope just that, that quick survey shows you that God takes sin very seriously, and that thus, so should we. Now, what is the nature of sin, then? The nature, like, what, what, what is it, really, at its core? And I'm going to give you seven things that theologians have tried to say. This is the true nature of all sin is this, or all sin is that. And there's not really any agreement on which one, but these are things that have been proposed, and they all make sense to some degree. The first one is that sin is a disruption of peace, or disruption of shalom. Listen to the words of Cornelius Plantinga, who says, Shalom is defined as universal flourishing wholeness and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. In other words, what he's saying is that God created you to enjoy him and to enjoy his creation. And every time we sin, we disrupt that enjoyment. We disrupt that peace. And all sin is a disruption of shalom or peace against God. God is for peace, therefore God is against sin. And that's one way to look at sin. Another way is to look at it as idolatry. Now when we think of idolatry, we might think of of making a statue and bowing down to the statue. And of course that is a form of idolatry. But idolatry is any time we give more worth to the creature over the Creator. And we could do this in the way we manage our time, in what our priorities are, in the choices that we make. As John Calvin famously said, our hearts are idol factories. We can take good things and make them into idols. We can make idols of our families. We can make idols of our money and our jobs. We can make idols of athletics. We can make idols of entertainment. Anytime we give the priority of our thinking to things other than God, we are committing idolatry. And so one could argue that any sin, name one sin, lying, lust, adultery, stealing, murder, all comes back to worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And so all sin is idolatry. Third and fourth are very similar, selfishness and pride. Selfishness is basically choosing yourself as supreme, saying, "I'm I'm the thing that matters most in my life. Now, you might say that's the same as pride, but you could think you're the thing that matters most in your life without actually thinking you're perfect. Whereas in pride, you exaggerate your value. You think more of yourself than you ought. And Calvin and Augustine both would say that pride is the source of all sin. I mean, think about it. When Eve ate the fruit, she was convinced in that moment that her happiness was more important than God's laws. Fifthly, sensuality. Some have proposed that it's the tendency of a person's sensuous nature, right? Being guided not by reason or by goodness, but by our senses. What tastes good, what smells good, what feels good, which dominates our spiritual nature. Again, this is definitely a major component of sin. Uh, the, the, the world out there tells us, follow your heart. Right? How many movies end with that line? Follow your heart. And the Bible says the heart is des- <laughs> desperately wicked. You know, you can't just follow your heart. I'm sorry, you can't. You can't just follow what tastes good, smells good, feels good. That's how they advertise things to you and me. If it tastes good, it feels good, 
doesn't matter how much it costs. doesn't matter what it will cost you in the long run. That's what the world does. And that's what we do. And so sin is, in many ways, capitulating to our own sensuality. Sixthly, sin is rebellion. As mentioned earlier, Romans 1 tells us, despite what anyone says, that everyone knows there's a God. Yes, there are people whose consciences are so hardened that they would say there is no God. But we have a conscience. God has revealed himself in creation. And people who don't believe in God, it's not because of an intellectual issue. It's a moral issue. The Bible says they are suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness. So when we sin, we are choosing to disobey what we know is right. That's rebellion. And then finally, sin is unbelief. It's a lack of faith. In that moment, you're not believing the truth. If you're in front of a screen and you're about to click on something or watch something that you know you shouldn't watch, if you truly believed that God Almighty was watching you at that moment, you would not click. That's why if a human being walks in the room, you don't click. Because you know that they're there. But in that moment, you click because you don't really believe God is there. It's unbelief. In that moment, we have a lack of faith. So sin is all of these things. Brothers and sisters, I just hope that you see how bad sin is. And the punishment of the crime rises... In regards to the one that was sinned against. So if I sin against a police officer, there will be a certain crime that I'm going to have to answer to. And then I go to the courtroom. And if in the court I show disrespect and sin against the judge, you know my penalty is going to be extended. And likewise, we can sin against each other. And we do. And there are consequences to that. But sinning against the God of the universe, and by the way, all sin is ultimately against God demands eternal consequences. The punishment for our sins is actually just. If we want justice, if we really want to see the the child abuser pay justice one day, if we want to know that God will take care of those terrorists throughout history, and we're crying out for justice, we want to be consistent, then our sins, which are cosmic treason against the King of Kings, deserve to be punished as well. And as we established last week, he's a good God, which means he's not an unjust judge who will just, you know what? You're pretty nice. I'll sweep your sins under the rug. It doesn't work like that with God. He's perfect. So he will judge us perfectly. And if you add up all the sins that you've committed and I've committed in my mind, in my heart, uh, and towards others throughout my life, multiply it by the number of years that you've lived, we have a lot of explaining to do. That means we're in trouble. And that's bad news. If someone came up to you and just randomly said, good news, I just paid your million dollar debt and now they're not going to come after you tomorrow and bring you off to jail. Probably the first thing you'd say is, what are you talking about? I didn't know I had a million dollars of debt and didn't know I was about to go to jail. But if the story switches to, you know that you can't meet the deadline because your debt is so great and you know they're coming after you any moment and then someone steps in and says, by the way, I took care of it. Well, that's good news. That's refreshing. That's why we have to understand the, the amount of debt that we owe to God. It will take all of eternity in what the Bible calls hell 
to pay off the debt that we owe to God because we have sinned against Him so many times. That's the bad news. But brothers and sisters, we're here to unpack the gospel. And as we wind up this evening, and we will even plumb the debts even more beginning next week, I want to leave you with how understanding your own sinfulness helps you to appreciate the gospel more. Sinfulness and the gospel. Number one, law-breaking requires punishment. Remember from last week, the gospel boiled down in its content is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what's the connection then between my sin and what Jesus did? 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that everyone may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Listen, if you stand before a perfect judge in the filthy rags of your sin, you and I stand no chance. But if someone takes the punishment for us, then we can find favor with God. And the beauty and good news of the gospel is that though you owe a debt you can't pay, Jesus paid a debt he didn't owe. He paid your punishment on the cross. You and I were helpless. We're not going to bribe God. And God is not going to tip the scales. This is something a lot of people believe out there. They think, well, if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, God will measure that. That's not how it works. We need 100% perfection, and we don't have that. Only Christ does. And so because law-breaking requires punishment, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus was punished instead of us. Next week, we'll take a look at Christ's sinless life so you can see that more clearly. Secondly, sin requires atonement. Not only do we need to be punished, but Christ took it for us. God needs to be appeased. God needs to be satisfied. That's why in the Old Testament, every time people sinned, they had to go to the the tabernacle and the temple and give peace offerings and love offerings and and, 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 um, guilt offerings. And not because those things ever saved, but they pointed to the one ultimate sacrifice. Look what it says in 1 John 4, verse 10. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word right there, propitiation. Big word, not a very common word. I don't see it on any billboards around here. But we should know that word. As Christians, that should be a lovely word for us. Propitiation. What does that mean? That means the satisfaction of God's anger. The satisfaction of God's wrath. Now, as I established last week, God is perfect, therefore His anger is perfect. You and I, we don't have perfect anger. Sometimes we're righteously angry. Sometimes we're angry for all the wrong reasons. God is never angry for wrong reasons. He is angry at sin because sin is injustice. Sin is rebellion. Sin is all the 16 things I said it was. So because God is angry, what will appease His anger? Only a perfect sacrifice of a spotless lamb. And we're not spotless. Therefore, thank God for the gospel, because Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, laid down His life as the atonement to satisfy the wrath of God the Father on behalf of all who believe in Him. Yes, God is perfectly just, but He's perfectly loving as well. So why did Jesus have to die? Because our sins require atonement. Thirdly, separation requires reconciliation. 
If you're like me, you, you really like watching videos of people being reconciled. Sometimes it's, it could be something as simple as a soldier was away for two years and surprises their children at school or talk shows back in the 90s. I think Montel Williams probably did a lot of these kind of like reconciling people. If you don't know who Montel Williams is, ask Mark, he knows. Right? <laughs> He, he did a, uh, a show in Bayonne once, didn't he? He did. Um, and, uh, but it's just a beautiful thing, even in real life, when you reconcile with someone that you had tension with or you've heard stories of that. Uh, well, the chasm between man and God is greater than any tension or long distance that's ever been between two people. Remember what I said about God being the source of all good, and we've walked away from Him, right? Our sins have separated us from God. So if sin separates us from God, the good news of the gospel is it brings us back to God. Because we can never build a ladder that was tall enough. We can never pay money that is a large sum enough. We can never do good works that are good enough. There's nothing we could do to ever attain back to God, but God in the gospel makes the move toward us. He moves toward us and reconciles us to himself. Look what it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 18-19, two of my favorite verses in all the Bible. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, Christ in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting us the message of reconciliation. How beautiful that is. God reconciles us. So everything that God intended for you and me, that is, to live in perfect union and harmony with the God who is good, to experience His love, to know His peace, to, to love His justice, to, to have a friendship with God, that was ruptured, right? But the gospel brings it back. Finally, fallenness requires restoration. It's important for us to understand how much we have fallen, and by we I mean us as individuals and the world, so that we can greater appreciate when God restores all things. Look what it says in Romans 5, 17 and 19 as we close. For if, because of one man's trespass, that's Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Jesus is the second Adam. We all fell in Adam, but in Christ we are made alive. Where Adam squandered the Garden of Eden, those who are in Christ will receive a new heavens and a new earth. Where Adam and Eve ruptured the relationship with God, Jesus Christ brings us back to God. In Adam we die, in Christ we're made alive. And so all things will be restored for those who believe in Christ. Everything lost in Eden will be regained, and it will be perfect, and there will be no more sin. Thank God for the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who we will look more closely at next week. Amen.